This is a Sci-Fi Rewind with Kevin Batchelder, Miles P. McLaughlin, and Scott Herzog. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Rewind. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog, and with me is... Hello, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And, uh, you know, we're kind of interrupting this regularly scheduled broadcast because uh, Kevin's not with us. Mm -hmm. Not right now. He will be later on the show. But we just wanted to chime in saying we are not going to be recording with Kevin next month. Not because we hate Kevin, because he's insanely busy. But we did want to announce a movie, the movie that we are going to be doing for the month of March. And it's actually something that's kind of fun. I know it's near and dear to Miles' heart. And there's a lot of people that hail this as being the classic in the genre. True, very true. Right. And so what movie are we doing, Miles? We're going to review Star Trek Rathacon. Right. And not that it hasn't been done before, but you never quite had it the way the diner's going to present it. Well, sure. I mean, you, you haven't heard Scott and I take it apart, or whoever, you know, who our uh, guest host will be at that time. And we will have a guest host. Yes. Yep. It's fully planned that we will have a guest host mm-hmm. that will come and kind of uh, just replace Kevin for one episode. We aren't getting rid of him. We love you, Kevin. We want you back in this episode. But I believe that's about it. That, that's all we need to know. Middle of March, aim to have it in, and that should give you a couple weeks to do this. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Rewind. This is Scott Herzog. I'm one of your hosts of this uh, monthly podcast segment that we do. Uh, with me is... Good evening. I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And he's also from the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. And also with us all the way from Massachusetts is... This is Kevin Batchelder. Yeah, you well... You sound like we're far away, Scott. You're, you guys are only in, like, Pennsylvania. I know. What is it, like an eight-hour drive? It could be in your backyard. <laughs> yeah, we could probably do this live together someday. Yeah, and we should. But, uh, sure, you're right. Yeah, or maybe meet halfway in between somewhere. I don't know. But, yes, yes, We'll have to con it somewhere when we're Yeah, we will. We'll have to find an excuse. Maybe when we're at, like, the New York Comic Con, we can kind of figure out this kind of middle ground. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, all right, well... It's so great to chat with you guys. We have just, Miles and I are just off of a con, and so I'm kind of hyped up. And um, and and, but I'm excited to be talking Twelve Monkeys tonight. This is a pretty cool movie. It was definitely, definitely one of the quirkier sci-fi movies I've ever seen. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Kevin, what was your impression watching Twelve Monkeys this time around? This time around, my brain didn't hurt as much trying to follow everything. Because I'd seen it before, but first time around with this one, your head is spinning between time changes and plot twists and everything else. I mean, this one really, you better be paying attention for. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. Um, because there's a lot, and there's a, there's a lot when you go through it a second time or a third time that you're catching you didn't catch a first time. It's just the way this movie runs. You know, one of the things about this movie that I really, that I really thought stood out for me was not necessarily the science fiction element of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I watched this, the thing that really captured my attention was the performance of Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, that, um, both of them definitely sort of broke their own type by, by, by their performances in this movie. 
Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. No, just very, very, very strong cast all around, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, the sci-fi elements are, I mean, obviously they're a big part of it, but you're right. It becomes more, I mean, it, it starts out because of the setting, very, you know, science fiction-y and time travel-y. But you're right. Once things settle in, you start paying a lot more attention to character in this one than maybe yeah. you do in a lot of other movies we, we might discuss, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Although it did have the sci-fi. I mean, it was definitely the side. The side in the future was definitely dystopian and, and, and apocalyptic. I mean, it most right. you know only a billion people are, are are alive, so it's definitely you know apocalyptic. But it's not a very clean sci-fi movie, which maybe I don't know. I mean, which was different for the time. It was just you know it was uh, being that it was it, it was definitely a darker sci-fi movie, right? I know by clean you're talking just the at the landscape. The landscape, yeah, the landscape was just um, especially very dystopian. I know I'm thinking especially at that one monument in Philadelphia that's supposed to be there that you see them that it's all graffitied up. I mean, you would never see that these days if you right. could. But it's just all great. There's trash everywhere, and this is supposed to be 1996. You mm-hmm. know, uh, when that's occurring, and it's you know it's so they do. It's very it's very gritty and very gritty for the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think uh, some of the notes I was reading. I mean, most of it was shot actually in Baltimore and Philly and such. So, yeah. Well, I thought, uh, Kevin, I thought one of the things that might be kind of nice to do for people who might be jumping on board and haven't really watched Twelve Monkeys. I don't know why you would, but but if you do, maybe it'd be helpful to give a little summary of the movie. And I know we haven't done this in the past, but it might be helpful for people that are leaping on, don't want to go watch the movie, but want to kind of get an idea of what this is about. So I'm just going to read a short summary here, if that's okay. Sure. Okay, so here's a summary of 12 Monkeys if you've never watched it. Basically, an unknown and lethal virus has wiped out 5 billion people in 1996. Only 1% of the population has survived by the year 2035 and is forced to live underground. A convict by the name name of James Cole reluctantly volunteered to be sent back in time to 1996 to gather information about the origin of the epidemic who he's told was spread by a mysterious army of the 12 monkeys and locate the virus before it mutates so that scientists can study it. Unfortunately, Cole is mistakenly sent to 1990, six years earlier than expected, and is arrested and locked in a mental, locked in a mental institution where he meets Dr. Catherine Riley, Riley, Riley um, a psychiatrist, and Jeffrey Goins, the insane son of a famous scientist and um, virus expert. So that's just a synopsis of the first really part. And it kind of spirals out from there. But mm-hmm. that gives a good premise for it. Um, so let me, before we get into like the nuts and bolts, I always read the stats. And this movie did actually really well. In fact, I read somewhere that um, what Terry uh, – what's his last name again? Oh, I forget. Gilliam. Yeah, thank you. Terry Gilliam. This, this movie made five times the budget. Mm-hmm. You know, so did very well. Domestic gross being about sixty sixty million dollars, not huge for today's standard, but you're talking nineteen ninety five here. And um and then also worldwide brought in uh an additional uh one hundred and eleven million. Hmm. That's that's good. Yeah, not bad. Not a bad, you know, haul from this movie. Yeah. No, did you folks uh, get a chance to watch the making of featurette that's on the D V D? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I did not. No, I mean, well, I mean, it's just yeah. For anyone who might uh, be interested, it's certainly one of those ones. They do a good job. They they had a film crew uh, follow Terry Gilliam around as, as they did the initial production and setup for this movie, and they they were really in a bit of a financial bind. Uh, 
I think it was Universal put them in in terms of a very stick to the budget. They had to get very creative with some of the stuff. So they, you know, Universal was certainly not, uh, you know, 100% positive this thing was going to make any money. So they, they had to get pretty creative. And it's it's nice to see some creative people be able to, to pull a lot of these things together to, to turn something in that's not only creatively exciting but also financially successful. Well, I, yeah, and the only thing that I came across when I'm doing just a little bit of research on the movie is that Bruce Willis kind of took a lower salary than a star status normally would entitle, partly because of the budget restrictions, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. But he did that also to kind of work with Terry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think actually it says that Bruce did the movie for free, but it was only after the movie was released that he was paid. So I don't know the authenticity of that, but you know, however, however much you can trust IMDb for its information, right? Yeah, put put the asterisk on it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So the note found an IMDb, which is maybe yeah. is a little bit better. Maybe maybe a little bit better than Wikipedia. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I, I think Brad Pitt also kind of was said to sign up for this movie for a relatively small salary. Now that being said, he was kind of an up and coming actor at the time. Um, by the time the movie was actually released, Interview with the Vampire had come out. Legends of the Fall Seven had been released making him a top salary actor, but when he was actually signed on for the movie, it was prior to these. Mm, okay. So, yeah. I wasn't sure of the timing of when his meteoric rise occurred. Yeah. What was bad? I, re- I remember, you know, Legends of the Fall hit, you know, it was Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt, Brad mm-hmm. Pitt without a shirt on and long hair. Come on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but he also, you know, got nominated for an Oscar for crying out loud. I know. Which film was that? Was that for Legend? No, this one. Oh, it was for this one. Yes. Well, and, and it's no wonder, you know, I was one of the thi- one of my my favorite character even though it's James Cole, my favorite character absolutely is um is Brad Pitt's character. This was a this was a pretty good pretty good movie here and um as, and I especially like Brad Pitt's performance in it. I think some of my favorite quotes I think someone did he say I'm going to pee? I don't know. <laughs> I think he did. Uh, but I think some of my favorite quotes uh, are from are from uh, um, Brad Pitt. Yeah, he, he plays over the top really good. <laughs> oh my word! And you know, this is prior to Fight Club coming out because I saw a lot of a lot of Fight Club in his in his character here. Mm-hmm. I don't know where do you want to take this as far as a direction goes. Well, I'm curious just for some general thoughts from from either of you guys. I mean, when you know, first in, first instincts, first time seeing it. Did you see it before? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, so I, I mean, I had. So really, it has to be. What what mm-hmm. what, what stood out to you? Well, I kind of knew this was going to be a different movie as soon as I heard the music. The music was definitely quirky. Uh, definitely not your typical sci-fi movie. Not in not not a good not not an orchestrated piece. It was. Um, I'm not, I, the instrument in the background. I'm trying to remember the name of the instrument, but it was just definitely, you know, this was going to be different as soon as it started. Yeah, I think one of the things, like I mentioned to you, Miles, that this is almost like a, um, there's almost a gypsy element mm-hmm. to the music. I don't know. It, uh, it was, it's not your usual sci-fi music. Definitely a different choice I mean, yeah. when it comes to the music. Uh, thoughts on the music? Uh, I can't say that it... Uh Stood out to me. I don't mean that in a negative way, but you know how some films, like Miles was saying, you really catch. It. I mean, I, it's a Terry Gilliam film, and his his creative side of things is it's quite unique. So maybe I expected something a little odd, and therefore it uh, it fit in well. Yeah, well, it definitely is an odd choice. So I don't know the music. The music certainly was kind of quirky for mm-hmm. me. 
Um, I think probably my one of my some of my let's talk, let's get into some of our favorite scenes here a little bit. Um, I think one of my favorite scenes is actually the insane asylum when he's in when James Cole's in there with uh, Brad Pitt, you know, going, you know, his character. Yeah, I would say that for me, um, especially when the one orderly asks uh, Brad Pitt's character to sh- you know show him around and you know you know. His, his character is trying to negotiate as far as how much to get him paid and stuff, and you Fine. know, it's it just a, they both know it's just they're they're joking around, having fun with each other. But it was you know, it, it was still entertaining watching, uh, uh, you know, Brad Pitt be you know that character in, the, in there, and even the 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 the, the uh, mental hospital itself. I mean, this place looks older than dirt. I mean, you got paint peeling. It's just you know not you know. Doesn't look very modern at all. It looks very, you know, very old. So that even adds to the uh, the mood and the atmosphere. I was going to say an asylum like that would never pass today. No, exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, I was thinking in that scene that you know, um, I read somewhere I think that Terry Gillum was afraid that Brad Pitt would not be able to pull off the nervousness, so he actually sent him to uh, a speech therapist mm. uh, until he realized all he had to do was take Brad Pitt's cigarettes away. <laughs> and uh, and so that's then he played it. He played it exactly like uh, Terry wanted. Oh, uh, cool! So, <laughs> I was convinced. Yeah, it was. You know, I think some of my favorite quotes come from just that scene, and like one of them. Uh, and I actually want your thoughts on this, Kevin. But the one quote he says: "Semmelweis, Semmelweis, Semmelweis, put this along. He's trying to convince people." Other doctors, man, they think they're the most teeny tiny invisible things called germs that get into your body and make you sick. Huh? He's trying to get doctors to wash their hands. What is this guy? Crazy? Teeny tiny invisible. What do you call them? Uh, uh, germs? Huh? What? Now, I took the 20th century. Huh? Last week, as a matter of fact, I was dragged into this hellhole. I go in, I order a burger, and this fast food joint, the guy drops it on the floor. See? He picks it up, he wipes it off, he hands it to me like it's all okay. What about the germs, I say? He says, I don't believe in germs. Germs are just a plot they made up. So they can sell you disinfectants and soaps. Now, he's crazy, right? See? There's no right, there's no wrong, there's only popular opinion. You you believe in germs, right? I'm not crazy. Of course not. Of course not. You want to escape, right? That's very sane. That's very sane. So this Samuel Weiss, does that name ring a bell for you at all, Kevin? No. Samuel Weiss from Fringe? No, I'm sorry. It's not clicking. What about the bowling alley attendant? Oh, okay. Wasn't he Sam? That was Sam Weiss. Mm-hmm. Sam, yeah, I know it was Sam. I didn't know the last name didn't click with me. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't know. I didn't know Fringe was actually, you know, it was just a random happenstance, or if they were actually pulling it from this. Oh, uh, that could have been. I, I wouldn't put it past the Fringe producers. <laughs> no, no, they're they're trying to love pull. Love to go to detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're they're trying to pull a lot of stuff over our eyes right now. So. <laughs> but, um, so I think you know this is just an example of some of some of the lines and dialogue. That that Pitts delivers so beautifully. Oh yeah, you, uh, you totally, you totally believe that he is just crazy as a loon. Oh, absolutely. 
Uh, Miles, do you have a favorite scene, favorite part, favorite quote that kind of stands out there? Um, the, the first time the mental hospital is good, but the second time where he breaks Bruce Willis out, uh, where he, he really just goes nuts. Oh, that's I'm, fun. <laughs> I mean, he, he's just having a good time there. Um, or, or the scene between the – well, that, that that giant – that big bedroom. You know, he just – you know, he just starts. He, he he he. There's a patient between the two. He jumps on the bed. He's next to the guy. Guy puts his hand on. Him, and he smacks the other guy's hand, and you know he's still talking to Bruce Willis. And and then then he he get, he get, he goes um, ballistic again. He tears apart a pillow and jumps across the beds and wakes everybody up. And he had to have fun making that movie. That's all I got to say. Oh my word! He had to act totally insane. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he definitely accomplished it. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, I was thinking it'd be funny you talk about the cigarettes bit. Um, with some of that stuff, I started to think that you know this is you know if you give someone like eight cups of coffee, he could certainly pull it off doing all that stuff. Yeah. Wasn't there? Wasn't it? Wasn't there a? Uh, do you remember Mad TV was on, Kevin? Oh yeah. Do you remember Caffeine Man? Uh, I have vague memories. It's not sticking, but yes. <laughs> but, that's, but that's what it reminds me of just a little bit. I know that's a really – I probably watched like two episodes and one of them had I watched happened to have that. So yeah, uh, Kevin, did you have a favorite scene that kind of stuck out to you? It's not so much a scene. The thing that I really love and, and why this movie is so great as far as its uh, rewatchability is how uh, – it, it plays through the whole movie, but really how early on naturally uh, when Bruce Willis is trying to convince uh, – you know Madeline Stowe's character, the, the yeah, Catherine Rayleigh, uh, that all this is real. That, that, that this whole time travel thing, everything else. He spends you know probably the first half to two thirds of the movie trying to do that, and then as we get towards the end, the situation totally flips, where he now starts believing that okay, yes, I am crazy, and it was all made up. And now she's the one who's seen enough clues to realize it's real, and she has to instead try to convince him that he was uh, actually spewing correct information to start with them. And I love that total shift in those two characters as it, as it occurs slowly throughout the movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's more, more, I mean, there are some wonderful scenes, but to me, that's the thing, especially on a rewatch going back, you can pick up the subtleties of, of how far in one extreme he is and she is early. And then towards the middle of the movie, they're kind of close together. And then eventually one passes the other in terms of who really believes it's just so well done. And she sort of, she has the facts to back it up that, He's not crazy. I mean, um, well, she's got that. I mean, we're, we're kind of going later in the movie, but she has a, an old picture of him. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, which which another thing is the time travel technology that th- these people have. It's not perfect. It's 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 flawed. It you know it usually sends them doesn't send them to the right place the first time. Um, and, and one time it sent him and another guy back to World War One. They had no reason to go back there, but. That was something that provided ample evidence because there was a photograph of them there. Right, not to mention the bullet in his leg. The bullet wound, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, we, we we focused a little bit on well, actually, a lot of what we talked about is focused a little bit on Bruce Willis and uh, especially on uh, Brad Pitt. But there were other notable actors as you, that as you go back and rewatch, you're like, oh, I know that actor. Um, what sort of what other actors did you guys pick out that kind of stood out? I didn't know uh, Frank Gorshin, the guy who played the Riddler in the, in the original Batman TV series, and also known for his, um, you know, he, he did impersonations. Um, uh, I was surprised to see him in there. Yeah, 
I think um, David Morse, who was Dr. Peters, one of the uh, biologists or uh, whatever they were, the one working with the virus. I mean, he's been to so much stuff, like from the. Uh, I think he. Was, I want to say he was in. Um, he was. He was definitely in Contact. He's been in a bunch of other movies here and there that he's done kind of bit roles in. And I was like, I know that guy. But, yeah, I, I've oh, yeah. definitely seen him around. Um, who's the other guy you mentioned? The older guy. Oh, Christopher Plummer. He oh, played yeah. the. Uh, Brad Pitt's father, the the the, uh, the chemist, and he played a good performance by him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so there's quite an impressive. Well, number one is quite an impressive cast for the amount of uh, for the low budget it had. So yeah, they got some big names. Now, right? now I don't know my film history quite as well as I should, but Kevin, do you know why actors really wanted to work with Terry, Terry Gilliam? What what made him? Well, yeah, he's. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's well known as as a creative uh, visionary. Some some of his films, um, uh, Brazil from uh, a few years, I think before this. I'm not sure the exact dates, or even a little more, maybe ten years. I don't remember the dates on them, but was was quite a uh, creative uh, piece. And and uh, Baron Munchausen, and uh, he's done some really creative stuff way back to the uh, Monty Python days. Yeah, I mean, he mm. did he did Monty Python, you know, Quest for the Holy Grail, Life of Brian. Well, in search for Holy Grail is probably one of the best classics you have. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, folks have known that he's just really uh, one of those very unique type people to get a chance to work with him. Mm. Yeah, this and this, I also think this film was a bit different in that this wasn't something that he had written. Normally, the only stuff he was you know doing were projects that were totally uh, you know from him. But this is a, a different situation here, so that's why that making of featurette is is interesting for that reason. It really is not your average. Uh, stick a documentary crew behind the director, you know, on the set type thing. They've, they've really got some stuff there in terms of uh, what goes on to make a movie like this and some stuff with some of the other people. So it's an interesting take. Yeah, what well, David and Janet Peoples kind of wrote this. Yeah. As uh, inspired by uh, the film by Chris Marker, La Jete. Is that the way you say it? I don't know. But yeah, they took inspiration from that. I, I haven't seen that one, but. I thought, I, I thought I'd try to rent it and then I ended up. Forgetting that it even existed after I watched the movie, but, <laughs> but I did. I did actually look up a summary of this movie. Did you, did you ever find, look up anything about the movie, uh, Kevin? No, now, I didn't. Me, no. Let me just share it with you because you'll see kind of where they drew their inspiration from. It's short, right up here. So this is um, the the summary of the 1962 short film by Chris uh, Marker, a uh, film called La Jette, I guess it is. Um, a man, Davos uh, Hanek, is a prisoner in the aftermath of a third world war in a destroyed post-apocalyptic Paris where survivors live underground in La Palais de Chalat. I'm totally butchering that. Galleries. Scientists research time travel hoping to send test tubes of different, to different time periods to call past and future to rescue the present. They have difficulty finding subjects who can mentally withstand the shock of time travel, but eventually settle upon the prisoner whose key to the past is a vague but obsessive childhood memory of a woman. During an incident where the where a man was killed on the boarding platform at Orly Airport, after several attempts, he reaches the pre-war period. He meets a woman from his memory, and they develop, develop a romantic relationship. After successful passages in the past, experiment, experimenters attempt to send him into the far future. In a brief meeting with the technologically advanced people of the future, he is given power. He's given a power unit sufficient to regenerate his own destroyed society. Upon his return, 
His mission is accomplished. He discerns that he is about to be executed by his jailers. He's contacted by the people of the future who offer to help him escape to their time permanently, but he asks instead to return to the pre-war time period of his childhood, hoping to find a woman again. He re- he's returned and does find her at the jetty of the airport. However, the agent of his jailers has followed and assassinates him. In his final moments, he realizes that the death which he witnessed as a child was, and has haunted him for his entire life was none other than his own. Hmm. So... A uh, lot of parallels. Oh yeah, I mean, and they definitely picked a good piece to do a, you know, expanded. Now, is there a reason you think maybe they eliminated not going to the future in uh, Twelve Monkeys? I don't think it was necessarily needed, and well, and, and also, the, 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 like like we had said before, they had a limited budget. I mean, the um, the set for the future was you know very modest. It was just. Modern day shown that, you know, just more dilapidated. And really it was a soundstage, I assume, that they just created to create that elaborate you the, know, indoor jail cell. The jail cell in the lab. You know, in where, the lab, mostly, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, you know, the, the scene actually from the future that sticks out in my mind is not is not the not the underground, but it's when he's on the surface and he's out there and that, that bear roars. Yeah. And it's up in that, or that line roars and it's up in the roof of that building. Mm-hmm. That's the one that sticks out to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, one instant, the first t- time he's out there, and, he, and the doctors are questioning him, it almost has a steampunk feel as far as looking at all the you know, I mean, uh, the old TV monitors, and it just you know looks. It, it doesn't look. I mean, it's I know it's future, but it doesn't look futuristic. It looks like they, it's all cobbled up parts to you know make work. It, um, but I don't know, just kind of a little bit of steampunk in there. Yeah, Kevin. Do you have any thoughts about like what we've what we've been dialoguing about as far as the the technology, as far as the future, and that whole thing? Oh, I think it's just very smart. Uh, as as Miles was saying, it's very smart filmmaking. If you don't have a big budget and you've got to create a, a situation well in the future, if you do it on a small enough scale and do a good enough job with the dialogue and descriptions, you can create that atmosphere without really showing much of it. And I think they did that well because it really as we're discussing, is not a, really a cornerstone of the story. Right, right. Um, so uh, what other things kind of stick out for you guys as we uh, look at this movie? You, you know, this movie really, as you look at, uh, this movie's in the top 100, right? Right, uh, Kevin, I don't have a list in front of me, but I think it is. Oh, yeah, from, from many critics, it is definitely considered one of the top sci-fi films of all time. Yeah, and, and you know, and again, it's not like we're doing any space travel, but it's a time travel. It's a kind of viral, post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. type thing. I love the way everything's kind of, you know, interrelated. Like the phone call, Some things as simple as a phone call they received from the past, right? Uh, that they reconstruct and they say, "Did you make this phone call?" And he's like, "No," and it ends up being the woman, of course, that he meets, and how that's connected, and how the fact that. The Army of the Twelve Monkeys comes from James Cole himself. Yeah, well, he he sort of got had a reality check when he thought maybe he was the cause of the um, destruction of the world as as, as we knew it. Um, when when in a dr- drugged at Hayes, he said, "Wouldn't it be better just that there's no people or something like that to break right. his character?" Yeah, so uh, you know, and is he? You know, are mm-hmm. his words? I mean, he doesn't actually carry it out, but is he the inspiration? Right, right. Uh, also interesting seeing his um, – obviously the world that he comes from, it, you know, 
you can't you know you you can't go outside without some kind of environmental suit. Um, I mean, he's in some you know he's in prison, and so when he's in in our time, you know the air you could breathe the air. You know, there's music. It's you know, you know his character just just reacting to how much life is better, and so he wants to. I mean, makes makes plans to stay in in, in that present. Yeah, we really don't get much of a idea of what the world is really like, except for that prison lab and the the brief moments he's on the surface in the future. <coughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, anything stand out uh, else? For, like other scenes, other themes? I mean, this whole idea of what's sane and what's insanity—that's things kind of explores a theme. But uh, anything else that kind of sticks out to you as far as themes and ideas? Yeah, um, I, toothless guy. Um, the guy, you know, the one, the homeless guy that you know. Pulled out a bunch of his teeth, or you know, do we think? Well, this is where we talk about is Bruce Willis's character sane or not? I mean, he, he he hears him in the future, and then he bumps into him into the past, and the guy knows him. You know, what was his? You know, what was his story? I have no clue, Miles. <laughs> Maybe you do. <laughs> I don't. No, that's that's one of the cool parts is that really. Uh, unless I need to do some several more rewatches, I have yet to figure out was that whole concept of the guy, you know, in his head, so to speak, the one talking to him when he's on the gurney and when he's in the bathroom near the end and this whole idea of telling him, kind of forcing him in the right direction, was that in his head or was that somehow someone able to steer him to do what was necessary to to take care of things? That, that's a very intriguing thing, yeah, and, and as, as Miles said, the, the bum and the quote, present time that he runs into, is it the same guy or is that just his mind making the voice sound the same? We never really know, or at least I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, yeah, I don't know, and I, I don't have an answer for that either. But Kevin, you were about to say something. No, I was going to say one of the other key things for me, uh, really, about this film is just how well they do misdirection. Uh, all throughout the movie, I mean, you, you think you've got a bead on things, you know, that... Uh, you start watching, like you see a lot of movies, the Bruce Willis character is going to be the crazy guy. It's going to take the entire film before anybody believes him. You know, the calm, rational psychiatrist lady is going to stay calm and rational. And, uh, you know, once you start discovering this whole idea of the 12 monkeys and the virus release and the Brad Pitt character, you're sure, you know, him and his cohorts are the ones who cause it. So many times throughout the movie, uh, they just keep pulling the rug out from under you. No, that's not, that's not really what happened. No, no, hey, look at this. Oh. Actually, Bruce Willis is, like you said, um, crazy talk to uh, the Brad Pitt character is what caused the whole virus to start. No, that's not what it really is. <laughs> All this right. other stuff, all throughout the movie, you just keep, they keep spinning you so many different times. And then at the end, they give you a, a bit of an odd, open-ended ending that you can't really even be sure what it all means. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. So that's where, you know, so many folks consider it to be such a brilliant movie is it's not cookie cutter. It's definitely, like you said, it's not cookie cutter in the sense that they're oftentimes in science fiction they'll try to use time travel to go back to the past to avert a disaster. That doesn't seem to be the the people in the future's main concern. They just want to get information so they can cure this thing. Um, they're not concerned about averting this disaster in the first place. Well, technically, they go back and create the disaster. Well, I mean, isn't that kind of what happens here? Am I, am, I missing, am I missing the point? I mean, if Bruce Willis would not have gone back, 
would the I mean okay James Cole would not have gone back mm-hmm. would would the uh, virus and the army of the 12 monkeys a bit have even occurred so well, good good I was going to say the uh, my answer is yes because the virus was released by crazy scientist guy so that you know Bruce Willis's story at least to me my interpretation here guys is that uh, we're more watching just a sidelight of what went on with that whole thing because the the scientist guy who you know, took the stuff out of the lab from Brad Pitt's father, was going to release it. Brad Willis tried to stop him but didn't. He still got on the plane, made all those stops to release the virus, in my mind. So it, nothing was averted. Uh, like as, as Miles pointed out, the real part of what the time travel was for was for the folks in the future to at least have a way to kill off the virus so they can go back to the surface. Right. We're going to try to play retro you know, retcon <laughs> reality. They were like, okay, we're screwed, but at least if we can figure out what the virus is, maybe we got a shot at doing something with it. So we, it really became just more of a character story for the James Cole and, and the Catherine Rayleigh. Mm-hmm. So isn't this movie for 1995 just kind of a really bleak movie? I mean, because we, we have a movie that has really does not have a Hollywood ending. I mean, it's, it's sad. No. It's depressing. Yes. I mean, the main character is knocked off in the final scenes. And yes, you see it at the very beginning, even though you don't realize it's him, which is kind of beauty in and of itself. But it's uh, it's not a happy ending. It's like it's like watching uh, Arlington Road, if you ever saw that movie, you know, where Jeff Bridges' uh, character tries to stop a terrorist ends up, you know, being the guy that has the bombs in his trunk that blows up the building. You know, it's it, it's it's a it's it's not a happy ending. No, not at all, which is part of why it's a good movie in that sense, That especially for those of us who watch a lot of movies. Like we said, we get to think we know the cookie cutter. So when something like this can totally pull it out from under you, um, you know, if, you're right. If you're going to see movies because you want to walk out happy or with a smile or feel like the hero made a difference, you don't want to watch this one. No. Yeah, abs- yeah, you absolutely don't want to watch this one. <laughs> but it's uh, definitely a sad, sad, depressing movie. So I'm trying. Did 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 Cole was were, were they able to get the information to the future so they could you know cure the virus or did, I mean because he got killed at the end but did, um, I, my, my gut tells me no mm-hmm. yeah I don't think so I don't think so but it's that whole time paradox of you know does that mean that they didn't try with twenty other. You know, James Cole wannabes? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? The well, story isn't on. <laughs> well, towards the end of the movie, one of the do- – on the plane, the um, crazy scientist guy, he gets in his chair, but the woman sitting next to him, she's one of the doctors from the future. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that – I guess it's another that attempt. That is true. Another attempt from the future to try to, you know, at least lear- learn what the virus is so they can, you know. Or are the people – did they help? make the virus i mean i don't know there's a lot of questions that that brings mm-hmm. it's kind of an eerie uh, ending when you see him out on the plane with the doctor from the future right mm-hmm. uh, well um we got to bring this to a, we got to begin to wrap this up but i did have some trivia i wanted to kind of uh, give you guys tonight and uh, see if you know this. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're, uh, maybe following Terry Gillian around in the uh, and the extras and the making of might give you the answer to this. But the title, where did uh, Kevin? Do you know where the title comes from? Uh, no, Miles. 
Don't know. The Army of the Twelve Monkeys is inspired by a passage in L. Frank Baum's novel, The Magic of Oz, in which the Gnome King and Kiki Aru convince twelve monkeys they they will have an endless supply of endless supply of food if they become human soldiers for them. So, a little bit of trivia there. Um, the other one uh, is. Um, right after uh, Dr. Leland Goins gets off the phone with Dr. Rayleigh, doc- Dr. Peters can be seen handling a, tr- a tray of seven vials filled with a golden liquid. Do you, any of you know what this is in reference to? No. Not a clue. <laughs> okay, this yeah. is really obscure. I'm picking some stuff here. Twice in the movie, the passage from the Book of Revelations is quoted referring to the seven golden vials filled with God's wrath. Oh. Oh, so, and then last but not least, um, Terry Gilliam gave Bruce Willis a list of Willis acting cliches not to be used during the film. Can you name any of them? Acting cliches? Uh, I mean, things that he's done in other movies or yes. lines. Yeah, that he, that, he, that he was not supposed to use. Uh, he has a certain good. laugh. I wonder if it, one of his laughs, maybe. It was probably one of his laughs. Well, then there's no laughing yeah. in this movie. I don't so. think he he does laugh at all in this movie. No. No. Um, well, he does when he's in the car breathing the air. He's smiling. That's not that's not a typical laugh he does. No. No, that's more crazy, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think what, one of them that I've listed here is that steely blue eyes look that he gives that he wasn't supposed to use. So apparently, I don't have the entire list here. That might be around somewhere, but yeah, this was a departure from. But it definitely was a departure from Bruce Willis. So it was only three things. It was the only three things I have. Mm-hmm. So, well, we did get one piece of listener feedback, and I just want to read it. This is a um, email that came in from uh, one of our listeners, uh, Karen, who you know Miles and I had the pleasure of meeting at Farpoint. She goes by uh, what Turpet on uh, Twitter, if you want to follow her. Um, but she says this. I read 12 Monkeys back when it was a new release, and I thought it was weird and confusing, but it did have one thing going for it, a nice shot of downtown Baltimore. She's from Baltimore, by the way. Um, Even though I don't think they were actually set in Baltimore, if I recall correctly, I think my dad even got inconvenienced by the film. He was working in downtown Baltimore at the time. I wish filmmakers would announce when they'll be in town so folks can come down and take a look. I love to watch a movie being filmed. I was almost in one of the stadium crowd scenes in Major League Two. We had tickets for one of the O's games where they'd be filming, but my dad made me go to marching band practice instead. No bitterness there, mind you. Uh, <laughs> I've never quite forgiven him for that. Anyways, as I'm writing this pre-far point, looking forward to seeing you guys this weekend and actually be all caught up in the podcast for a change too, Karen. So yeah, we actually did see Karen, but yeah, you know, Boston. There's certainly been films filmed in the in the Boston area, right? Oh yeah, there've been Absolutely. many of them done there. And hey, heck, Fringe is, Fringe was filmed there. <laughs> well, they but, do a pretty good job of getting most of that right, but some of it they're not even close. <laughs> no, no, of course. <laughs> but you know, anytime you saw filmed in location, there's kind of a sense of pride when the film comes out. I mean, that's just reality. Oh yeah. So that yes. makes sense. Uh, it did, did look like they were in Philly the few couple times. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they, and aren't they? They're traveling to Philly. So where are they traveling from? Do you remember? I think they're traveling from Baltimore from to Baltimore, Philly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Very good. Yeah. Well, so if I were to give this film a, a, ra- a rating, as far as you know, let's should you watch this? Should you pass on it? I think this is a movie that 
if you want to call yourself a sci-fi fan, this is one that you really need to at least have in your Arsenal movies that you've watched. Um, that's my thoughts on it. Uh, Miles? I, I would agree. I mean, it, this is one that makes you think you really have to have your thinking cap on while you're watching this movie. And maybe even one sitting isn't enough to because there's, there, there's so much layers in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin? Yeah, very similar to you guys. This is a, this is one of those ones that's on a checklist. Like you said, if you call yourself a big sci-fi fan, you have to have seen it. But yeah, you are Mike, most likely going to need multiple viewings to to have any chance of totally grasping what's going on here. Yeah, there'll be a level of understanding watching it the first time, but there will be a whole another yeah, level if you watch exactly. it again. Exactly, yeah, you won't yeah. even realize what you missed till you watch it the second time. Right, right. Very good. Well, we have got to go. We've got to wrap up the show here. Um, but thank you so much for joining us for the Sci-Fi Rewind tonight. Kevin, if people want to find out more about you and about uh, everything that you're doing, including a Dollhouse podcast you rumored to have launched recently. <laughs> yeah, a primary podcast and uh, any of the information you want to find about our stuff is over at tuningintosci-fi-tv.com. Very good. And uh, you can obviously find us, Miles and I, hanging out at the Sci-Fi Diner, making lattes, food, and everything else that we want to eat and drink there. And you can find us at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast.com. Kevin, I believe you're going to be off next month because you have an insane schedule. Yep. I got some other commitments, so I'm going to have to uh, step back and let uh, you two very capably steer this ship. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we're going to see if we can get a third person on. That's for sure. We'll see what we can do here. But... Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. And I got to go pick up my daughter from basketball practice. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Life uh-huh. never stops. Yeah. All right. We'll see ya. Recording. Stored everywhere plague of madness
Yes, my son. I don't know how to myself believe it.